I think that for me, as I said, with my mother particularly, she faced a lot of discrimination. She had one particularly bad incident where she was hospitalized because of racism. And oh, yeah, I know you can't really believe it. And Canada as well, such a nice country. That's terrifying. Uh, yeah. It is, it is. It was a long time ago, but nevertheless. So she carried that with her, but she never, it never stopped her from being this really open interested and kind and giving person. So that has really stayed with me. And I think it does mean everything to me personally, you know, family wise, friendships, in terms of work, everything, 99% of people, there's always the 1%, but whatever, 99% of people have been supportive, helpful, wanting to reach out and help without wanting anything back. And so we have tried to do that ourselves, small as we are to those people who are just starting out to say, well, here are some contacts, or have you thought about this? Because We've realized that that is how it works and that the more you give, you do get back. And actually, I'm also at the age where, which I didn't feel competent enough to do when I was younger, but I do now, which is if there are people that I feel are just really negative in my life, I do press delete and mm. I don't come back. And it's kind of okay, I think it really is. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Eileen Willett is an entrepreneur and fashion industry expert. Born in Vancouver to Japanese parents, she trained in Paris and started her working life as a fashion illustrator in San Francisco. With a career that took Eileen via Japan, where she met her husband, to finally settling where she resides now in London, Eileen went on to join the then-fledgling Nicole Fari menswear brand and helped it grow to be one of the premium men's brands of the 1990s. After a career break to have her three children, Eileen started her own successful women's wear accessory brand. Then, in 2017, she launched Cucumber Clothing with her co-founder, Nancy Zeffman. The company set out to make luxury comfortable using ultra-soft technical fabrics that are ethically, locally and sustainably sourced. Cucumber clothing has been featured everywhere from Dragon's Den to the Sunday Times Style and Vogue Italia. Shortlisted for the 2020 Asian Women of Achievement Awards, part of the Women of the Future programme, Eileen is also a speaker on female entrepreneurship and sustainability in fashion. I'm originally from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, as opposed to the States. I am Japanese Canadian. My father was born in Japan and emigrated, so he was an immigrant. My mother was born in Canada, but her parents were immigrants as well. So I'm kind of second and a half generation, I guess you call it. And yeah, growing up in Vancouver, my dad was a professor of neurology. We grew up in a really 
lovely, slightly at the time remote area. It was considered really far away now. Everyone's like, oh, it's 15 minutes from downtown. But at the time it was like, oh, it's so far away. Nobody wants to live out there by the university. But it was a great place to live. And obviously the catchment area for my schools were all either professors kids or graduate students kids so it was fairly academic even though it was at the time a very experimental hippie school so it's kind of lucky I had the parents I did or else I'm not sure where my education <laughs> interestingly because Vancouver now I don't know if you've ever been it's no a, I'd love to go but no. it, yeah it's beautiful it really is a beautiful physically beautiful place and it's now I think 60 to 70 percent non-white in terms of sort of mix of race uh, whereas at the time when I grew up in the place I grew up it was really really non-diverse and super waspy so in the school my brother and I went to maybe there it's quite small maybe 350 or 400 people all together and I'd say I could count on 10 fingers or less anybody who wasn't white so I'd say that definitely fed into you know Vancouver's Pacific facing um, my parents are the war generation when they bought their first house in Vancouver the people next door started a petition to try and get them off the street uh, yeah when my the house my dad still lives in now when they bought that house somebody said to them well you can't buy that house and my dad was like why and they said because you're not white as if like you dumbo wow <laughs> and it was like but I just bought it the person who sold it to him was Jewish so I think maybe there was something in that guy saying two fingers to everybody <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah but the irony is of course now the neighborhood is probably 70% Asian like mainly Chinese so there you go times change well but um, what was that like for you as a kid because obviously that's going to filter down right if your dad's having that experience and you yeah. as a child must have been like what's going on what's everyone getting yeah, I, 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 up I, about that's a really good question and I'd say two things one is because it was around the university so in theory everybody's very liberal and and they were though they were little things like my mother telling me later on oh yeah that girl's mother said she never plays with girls with dark hair so she she can't come for a play date <laughs> like, oh yeah I don't really understand but basically it was fine I wouldn't say really I experienced any outright racism but I think the way it feeds into you is that you know I'm because of dual heritage in the sense that I am very Canadian and I am very Western because I was brought up in that culture, but I also have a very sort of Asian Japanese side. And that feeds into when you're a child, the food that you eat, the sort of household rules, like to always taking your shoes off, being quite quiet and all of that. And so I think I was probably, especially in high school, you know, the sort of artistic, slightly misfit, hung out with all the sort of arties, slightly on the sideline losers that <laughs> But I think it's like trying to find your tribe. And I definitely wasn't blonde and I didn't look like, well, at the time, like the cultural icons like Charlie's Angels and you know mm. that just wasn't me so I couldn't find those role models which now are everywhere which is amazing to mm. see and very uplifting. And so was part of finding your tribe finding Nancy as well or did that come a little bit later on how oh, did you yeah. guys come across each other? Yeah so kind of skip all the way through so from Vancouver I traveled around a lot I ended up at university in the states in San Francisco did my bachelor of fine arts there then I had a gap year in Japan I worked at billboard I met the man who became my husband he's still my husband nice mm. to say and then moved here I worked at Nukofari for quite a long time and helped set up the menswear and then took quite a big chunk of time out to have a family 
And I met Nancy much later on at the school gate because she has three children as well. Her middle son and my eldest son became great friends when they were young and they are still great friends now, which is very nice in their 20s. And Nancy and I became great friends, partly, I think, because we're quite opposite. I think, is that how friendships work? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Yeah, you want people to fill the places that you don't have. And uh, we came up with this idea and we ran with it. And that's been an incredible journey, educational uplifting and not so uplifting sometimes (laughs) so what was your like you say you jumped forward quite far there but what was your first job out of education I'm assuming like most people you must have done little part-time jobs on the side and what have you but then you mentioned having a gap year and you know meeting your husband and the experiences you had around that what was your first proper job My first proper job was actually freelance. So I was a fashion illustrator. So after I graduated in San Francisco, I took on freelance fashion illustration, which was really fun. And then when I moved to Tokyo, that was a year which my parents sponsored for slightly ulterior motives. They didn't really like the person I was seeing at the time. Oh, And they cunningly, they're so cunning. They never said a thing. They just said, your aunt has a flat that you might be able to use for the year and you could get your Japanese really good and get a job. That's quite clever. That's clever. Clever because I was like, yeah, sounds so great. And I'm still in love. And two months later, we'd broken up. (laughs) Long distance. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Win-win for my parents. And I ended up getting a job at Billboard magazine in Tokyo, which was really fun. It was really just the boss and me. So I got to do lots and lots of different things. And he was super well connected in Tokyo. So that was great fun. And then when I moved to London, I did some temping jobs when I first moved here just to make some money. And then I ended up quite quickly working for Nicole Farin. So that was, yeah, I really landed on my feet. I was lucky. What was that like? Oh, it was great. It was really great. And I really love working in fashion, A, because I love sort of creative arts. I've always loved fashion and beauty. So that was like a dream job for me. It was also physically in a beautiful place because Nicole and Stephen, I think he might've just sold a French connection. They decided to build this incredible showroom in the West End, right in Soho, just off Carnaby Street. And you went up this tiny door, up this tiny staircase into this gorgeous issue it was meant to look like the musée d'orsay the old train station in paris it had this huge glass roof and this huge room it was physically a beautiful place to work also mentally and emotionally i realized looking back i was so lucky because you know fine steven's a man who's the big guy he's a big boss he never ever had a problem with women he liked having a strong woman around him nicole strong woman she was in charge and then my md danielle who was fantastic again incredibly strong intelligent person but really nurturing and supportive and then my immediate boss Peter who was the head of men's were really just three of us and he was again just really somebody who liked women who supported everybody so it was a great place to work I was in that respect I was so lucky there was no glass ceiling for women and there was no kind of oh well what you think you could do that it wasn't mm. that at all it was a really great place It's so important as well. And I know you've spoken about that you had an inherent love for the creative industries and art and fashion. And you've mentioned there a few figureheads or really integral people in your working life that have helped mould and shape your interests. But would you say there's a standout moment or a particular person that has helped shaped what you were doing and maybe reinforced that you were doing the right thing and kept you steadfast on this career trajectory that you have followed gosh um 
sorry, big silence, Jake, I'm having to think really hard about that. I mean, <laughs> I can't think of any stand-up moms. I think if I were to break down my working life, I think it's so difficult to untangle personal from professional. They're always very intertwined, aren't they? Mm. Um, so in terms of the mental support mechanisms I have, I think getting through difficult times, whether that is personal or professional, it's been very much my parents just thinking, you know, my mother was somebody who persevered in the face of adversity and a lot of discrimination because she grew up as a Japanese Canadian in the shadow of World War II. Um, but she always throughout her life was a sort of open and empathetic kind person. And also my dad, he faced a lot of hurdles, but he was incredibly passionate about his work and he threw himself into it. And I think when I always think whatever problems I have, you can overcome them. Again, the two bosses I had, but I'd also say actually my co-founder. So I, I rely on her as well, because as I said, she is my mirror. So she is all the bits that I'm not and all the bits I think, gosh, I could never do that. But working with somebody like that and just seeing how other people quite intimately, seeing how other people cope with the same problem that you're facing and how they deal with it, but maybe mm. in a completely different way is a real strength to pull on because anything, oh, I never would have approached it that way. But actually it's given me a different view of the same thing. And I'd say finally, actually having a family I am lucky and I, I love having had children and now they're adults, but that also has taught me that flexibility in life is key and that you can have your goals, but it's great also to be able to just think not to become too obsessed with particular goals and that goals mm. can change and they can morph and that's okay. You know, you get there in the end, but it's better mentally and I think emotionally to be able to be flexible about those goals and how long it takes you. It's very inspiring. And it's all components that are character building, isn't it? It's all, you know, just infiltrating into your psyche potentially and making you into the person you are today, all these little tidbits of influences and people and places and experiences, which is, is lovely to hear. But also then to move on to, well, tell me more really about cucumber clothing. We've mentioned Nancy a couple of times already. Where did the idea come? What was the inspiration? Tell me, yeah, tell me much more about it. Right. Well, where do I start? Where do I end? I think is going to be your question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so as I said, Nancy and I have known each other a long time. We came up with the idea because both of us are women in midlife. Both of us have busy lives. Both of us really like to work out, which sounds a bit weird, but we just have different. She is plays on a basketball team. Oh, wow. We have the same trainer. I love doing hot yoga and wild swimming. She likes running. You know, we, we both are quite physically active and we really enjoy it. And I'm not sure if this is true of you. It may well be. It's true of a lot of people I know. Sometimes in the morning, particularly during lockdown, you put on a pair of leggings, you put on a sweatshirt, and then at the end of the day, you find you're still in them because they're so comfortable, they move with your body. If you get a bit hot and sweaty, well, it just all dissipates. You never have to iron a thing. Mm -hmm. um, you can chuck it in a cold wash or spot washer, it's dry within you know, an hour. And we thought, look, we're wearing this stuff all the time. Why can't we have this for our everyday wear? So we did a lot of research, I think about two years of research, looking for amazing fabrics, came up with them, came up with a little capsule collection. It was really sleepwear to begin with. And it was a lot, to be fair, a lot of it revolved around hormones and it was very much a female facing brand for women, you know, whether they're going through the perimenopause or menopause, whether they are traveling a lot or living in a hot country. I have a lot of customers who live in hot countries 
whether they just are hot sleepers, whether they might have monthly cycles, which can affect you, whether they've just had a baby when your hormones go crazy and it can throw you into this sweaty frenzy. Sorry about this, <laughs> a bit like a graphic. But um, yeah, so two days after we launched in September 2017, the wonderful Lisa Armstrong, the fashion director at the Daily Telegraph, did a big article on us and it kind of threw us right out there straight away we had like you know our sales went through the roof and since then we've had a lot of publicity and we've grown up from being just sleepwear to being leisurewear as well growing to you know selling through places like the four seasons so we're mm. basically an e-commerce brand but I mean very much I'd say very much still a female facing brand trying to solve female problems how do you stay pressed looking cool and comfortable all day even if you're running around taking the dog out for the walk if you've got kids coping with having children possibly coping with having older parents possibly having a big job and a partner who's got a big job at the end of the day sometimes we all know we feel like a sweaty mess at the <laughs> yeah time. oh yes, yes yeah so we're just trying to say we're trying to take one little bit of that over for you so you just mm. don't need to worry about it I find it really interesting as well that some of the descriptive words around your clothing are the words empowering and, you know, giving women confidence and things like that. And they're not normally things that you would associate potentially with fashion. I know that we all feel a certain way when we put on clothes, but even the word empowering in particular. And you said that it's important for women of all ages and stages of life, as you were alluding to, that they feel great when they wear your clothes. And that you say your clothes breathe, they stretch, but they don't crease. You can put them on a cool wash. They dry really quickly. No ironing, which is amazing. But how integral was it that you gave women that sense of freedom, yet they still felt great? Is it just because that's what you were wanting from your own clothes? Yeah, 100%. That was exactly it, because there is something. So again, that's in our polar opposite. She's absolutely a flat shoe, really cool, <laughs> slightly stompy boots. I'm very much like, I really love heels. I can't deny it. And there is something powerful about putting on a really high heel and maybe like a bodycon dress and going mm. out feeling mm. you feel great, you feel powerful. On the other hand, there is a power of just putting something on and whatever you're doing, knowing that you're not going to look like that sweaty mess, like you don't need to worry about that, particularly if you're a woman in a job that is facing the public, whether you are presenting at a board meeting or you're sitting behind a till. The yeah. last thing you want is to find the equivalent of parsley between your teeth when you're doing that. And that can be, you know, sweat patches or having like a really wrinkled back of your jacket. It just brings you down you lose that confidence and we want our clothing to be something that you reach for time and again they are not the hero pieces they're not the sort of amazing gown or the super cool like velvet jacket it's not that at all it's those pieces like I'm wearing underneath this lovely dress which is not cucumber but my little cucumber top because it's just going to keep me on a slightly cold but gorgeous day I know it's going to keep me warm but it's also going to keep me cool if I'm rushing around so it is to do with giving women confidence in their lives that they don't need to worry about that one bit of it when they're really busy women are busy yeah and when you're setting out to find these kinds of materials because your clothes are made ethically locally and sustainably is that a challenge in itself because it feels like to me if you're going and I know you're not going from square one but I wouldn't necessarily know where to start looking for individuals that make those kind of materials or where to look so how did you approach it 
it was a challenge, but luckily um, Ms. Google is out there. <laughs> <laughs> and the British Library, which is a, an astonishingly amazing resource for those of us lucky enough to live in London, it's fantastic. So we basically got our heads down and did a lot of research, did a lot of email writing, sending off for samples and trialing. We had a group of people that, you know, we made samples up each time, had them, tried them out on people and chose, there was the winner, there was a clear winner. Brilliant. I mean, across all the work you've done and everything you've achieved so far with Cucumber in particular, is there any one thing there that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? Oh, gosh. Um, well, a personal versus professional. Actually, I can do one, which which is both. So if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, if I had to list up the things that I just hate to have to do, <laughs> uh, really found frightening and uh, just a bit overwhelming right at the top you know in reading would have been public speaking to be honest even doing something like this I would have really literally had my heart in my mouth I would be able to hear my heart pumping I'd be sweating a bit thank god I'd be wearing cucumber um, <laughs> but two years ago quite unexpectedly we were on Dragon's Den so you can imagine for somebody who really hates public speaking, particularly appearing in front of a camera, the whole idea was like, it was just not good. But in fact, I, I tried very hard and I overcame my fear of public speaking. So that actually was a huge high point because in terms of you know work, it was great. We had an enormous amount of exposure. It's an amazing program for that. But on a personal level as well, it is that confidence thing. It's just thinking there's something I'm really afraid of doing and something that scares me to bits. How mm. can I break that down and how can I make it work? So I had to make it work. So I just did. I hired a friend who's an actor to give me some lessons about breathing. And I mean, obviously it is your life. And for you, it must be very natural. For those of us who are not so naturally inclined, it was <laughs> have the lessons. I practiced and practiced and practiced. and actually now I, I really enjoy it is it about doing is it the is it the frequency that's key isn't it to keep doing it once you've spoken publicly to try and find other opportunities even if it's in a small setting or just pushing yourself out of your comfort zone or was it something else that was behind your nervousness do you think I think the nervousness I think maybe it's partly my character it is possibly partly because of my ethnic background that you know being Japanese it's very much that Asian thing of that when I say Asian, Asian is such a huge umbrella. I'm going to say Japanese. There's very much don't be the nail that sticks out. Everybody mm. needs to conform. Don't be the loud person. Don't be the one who's exceptional. It's better just to be exceptional within the group as opposed to being outside the group and being mm. exceptional. So I don't know if there's something in that, but I certainly have always found it a very troublesome idea putting myself forward in any way. And I still struggle with that. But I think what really helped was breaking it down like anything else, learning how to swim. You would have lessons. If you mm. didn't want to learn how to play the piano, you have lessons. If you want to learn how to speak, having lessons was a really good way because then I could just break everything down and then piece by piece put the things together, you know, breathing exercises, you know, sound exercises, mouth exercises, relaxing my jaw and just practicing. Yeah, so I think all of that together has made it a much more comfortable place to be. And did the dragons go for it? 
Sadly, they were extremely oh. foolish and mm. they turned us down. Well, but, that's them being silly, isn't it? Exactly. But we yeah. had the last laugh because, as I said, it does have a huge viewership. So that first bit of lockdown when it was shown was luckily for us, not bad. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and the Asian Women of Achievement Awards and what's inspired you to be involved with them? Ah, well, an incredibly inspiring group, which I'm ashamed to say I didn't know anything about until I was nominated out of the blue I was sent an email out of the blue saying that you've been nominated for this category of entrepreneur and since then have just become aware of how much they do and how amazing a group it is and Pinky who is the person who started it who's the person who runs it who's the spirit of the whole program of all the programs she runs she is a truly inspirational person and Yes, so I heard of it out of the blue and now feel very involved in it. And I'm incredibly proud to be part of this network. It's brilliant to have you as a part of it as well. Right, I have some quick fire questions just to finish. So if you're ready, what would you describe as your greatest success? Greatest success? I think I might have to be very cliched here, but I'm going to say my family because... Without my family, my children, my husband, my parents, I would not be the person I am. And I am truly proud to have created a family. And you said earlier that you took some time out to focus on your family. Was that really important for you? It was. And if I have time, this isn't a quick fire answer. No, but... sorry. <laughs> we digress. We digress. <laughs> when I fell pregnant with our first son, Matthew, when I was pregnant, I was working at Nickel Fari and my mother was very much a stay-at-home mom. She was a pianist and a piano teacher. She gave up work when she had children. And I kind of thought, well, that's what I want to do. I'd really like to stay at home and be a full-time mom for as long as I can. And my husband, who grew up in a family where both his parents were, his mother was a head teacher, and she hardly took any time off to have her kids. And she was straight back in there, very successful. He was, I, I know he was thinking, he never said, but I know he was thinking, what's this going to be like? It's like, we're just going to sit around talking about nappies and babies. <laughs> but literally the second Matthew was born, when we were in the delivery room, and then this baby came and I was thinking, what do I do with it? And I was thinking, I need to go back to work. And my husband's like, you can never go back to work. You <laughs> <laughs> have to and take care of our precious child. So we sort of immediately swapped roles. And, and I did go back to work for a while, but it just, it didn't work out for me. And I was lucky enough to be able to stay at home for quite a long time. So I'm grateful. It's so funny how the tables turned. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's made me smile. Okay. So what would you describe as your greatest failure? Uh, greatest failure. Well, in any life, there are failures. And I would say that luckily, I don't feel there's been a sort of catastrophic tsunami-like failure in my life. But in terms of one that runs through my whole life, I'd say one thing I have struggled with, which has led to failure on more than one occasion, is my tendency to procrastinate. It's not something I'm proud of, and it's something that has led to, you know, as certainly as a student, late nights, even with work, late night, you know, just always feeling like you're playing catch up in life, and it's not a great place to be. So again, that's something I've tried so hard to work on and I think I've I'm coming out a bit more on top now later in life I'm much more organized and it's it is much more of a happy place definitely so not one catastrophic failure 
possibly a series of minor failures all leading back to um, Mr and Mrs procrastination. Mm -hmm. So the mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? I think that for me, as I said, with my mother particularly, she faced a lot of discrimination. She had one particularly bad incident where she was hospitalized because of racism. And oh, yeah, I know you can't really believe it. And Canada as well, such a nice country. That's terrifying. Uh, yeah. It is, it is. It was a long time ago, but nevertheless. So she carried that with her, but she never, it never stopped her from being this really open, interested, and kind and giving person. So that has really stayed with me. And I think it does mean everything to me personally, you know, family-wise, friendships, in terms of work, everything. 99% of people, there's always the 1%, but whatever. 99% of people have been supportive, helpful, wanting to reach out and help without wanting anything back. And so we have tried to do that ourselves, small as we are to those people who are just starting out to say, well, here are some contacts, or have you thought about this? Because we've realized that that is how it works and that the more you give, you do get back. And actually I'm also at the age where, which I didn't feel competent enough to do when I was younger, but I do now, which is if there are people that I feel are just really negative in my life, I do press delete and mm. I don't come back. And it's kind of okay. I think it really is. It's the power of connections and networks. And I know that you've spoken before about when you were starting out and you were literally tapping into all the contacts that you had and trying to get the word out there. And then you just, as you just said, you now pay that forward to other people. And that yeah. that's an important part of the work that you do too. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that scares you? Oh gosh, well, as I said, I've luckily I've dealt with the thing at the top of my list, which has been knocked off. Um, Again, I feel a bit pathetic saying it, but I suppose everybody has something. So I'm the person, I do like a hike. I'm the person who will hike to the top of Scaffold Pike, but then I won't look down because I really hate heights. <laughs> I really hate that about myself. And even when it was worse, I've gotten better. I remember going on going on the, the London Eye with the kids when they're really small. Yeah. And they're all staring out the window, hands and noses pressed against the glass. I was sitting on the bench in the middle, so I didn't. <laughs> Wow, um, this is ridiculous. This is, I've got to get over this. I'm trying, I'm trying very hard. But you'll do the journey, you'll get on the Ferris wheel, but you just won't look over the edge or look out at the view. Keep my eyes shut, it's very useful. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's left on your to-do list? Oh gosh, so much. I mean, like, there's just so much, particularly after these two years, isn't there? You know, life has been slowed, we've had to slow down, we've had to stop. And so, so much, literally everything from, well, I'd really like to be able to do a proper headstand. That's on my list. <laughs> that's um, a great one. I love yeah, that. <laughs> I love to go to South America, partly because I've never been, my husband would love to go. So that's, that's definitely on our list. And then I'd say actually on a really personal note is doing a bit more investigation and the Women of the Future, Asian Women of Achievement was really a kickstarter to this to make me want to investigate you know at this late date in my life to um, look back at my heritage and really investigate my ethnic heritage and um, particularly as somebody east asian in the uk in vancouver i said it's very normal to be east asian in the uk not so much and also to investigate you know as i said i have this dual heritage which is i have a canadian side and i have mm. an english side british side and i have my japanese side and i think that sometimes those people who might be listening who are like me and have that to your heritage from wherever you're a little bit like um 
Homer on his way home, you're going from port to port to port and you're trying to find your way back somewhere. And even when you get home, it doesn't necessarily feel completely home because mm. you have different elements to your heritage, your culture and your mind, the way you think and what you like and don't like. So yeah, that's on my list of things to do, to do a deeper investigation into that. Yeah, fundamental parts of your identity. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. And it's a bright and sunny day. And I feel like that's the kind of disposition you have. So thank you so much for sharing that with us and telling us much more about Cucumber as well. So what's the website for Cucumber? It is www.cucumberclothing.com. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.